Salutation Shades, and welcome back to your one-stop shop for all things strange and unusual talking with shadows. The conversation everyone has, but no one wants to admit to. Here with your host, Vic Whaley. And Marcus D. We want to give a big shout-out to our friend Missy today, who recorded our headshots. <laughs> that is not easy. I am very non-photogenic. Yes. I am hard to get a good picture of, and she did a great job. Yes, she did. We have our upcoming appearance at the Virginia Bigfoot Con on June 18th. So we're super excited because we got our first Actual headshots, because if you've seen any other photograph of us ever out, we're going to do some sort of a public appearance or anything. It's just a silhouette, but we're going to have actual photographs of me and Vic posted. So she did a very good job. So we're super, super excited. Big shout out to her for that episode. Mine look great. Yours look a little, but there's not a lot you can do well, about that. She did my comedy headshots too that I've, you know, that I've had that I've had for like a thing going on like three years. She's very talented. She's a very talented photographer. So like, they're gonna they're gonna stand the test of time. When it comes to you, she did the best she. Could I know. Do. There's only so much that you can <laughs> do with 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 this with us. So big shout out to her for that. Uh, super excited. Uh, both of our birthdays are coming up, right, Vic? Yep. Yeah. So January is a big uh, birthday month for uh, the One Candle Society. It's like mine is on the the fifteenth, and Vic is on the twenty fifth. Yep. Yep. So uh, it's gonna it's gonna be fun. So we're super excited about that, and then we're super excited because all month long for our birthdays, we're gonna be talking about monsters and magic, oh, yeah. and how that intertwines. Super, super excited. But for today's episode, let's dive into some alcohol before we get into the comments Heck from the yeah. last episode, because uh, we're actually recording over at my house still. That's why uh, the audio might sound a little different. Yeah. So we're, we're recording over here today because we actually just recorded a. Uh, interview with T. Harriman, who is an author from Evansville, who pulls a lot of her influences from Evansville, which is going to be posted next week. Uh, whenever uh, we're taking my week, uh, my week, my birthday week off, yep. <laughs> so that'll be coming out for that. Don't so worry, we'll still be doing videos on my birthday week, but Marcus isn't. <laughs> I gotta take. I everything. I gotta. I need a break. I wanted to. I want to take. I want to take a break for for my birthday. So for today, I'm going to be drinking what I thought was apple wine, and now apparently I have discovered is an Oliver Soft Rose wine. Oh, that's so good. I mean, I know it's good. I was just, I when I, it was turned around, I really thought that it was, I really thought that it was a uh, an, an actual, like, apple wine, which is, like, my favorite kind of wine. He really goes nuts for apple yes. wines. So, and you're going to be drinking a pineapple rum and coke zero we're basically just using whatever he had in yeah, his house so yeah we're 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 we're, we're diving we're diving into the alcohol <laughs> that we just had on hand here at my house because we were too tired to move the equipment back to my yep back to vic back to this back to the studio you have a cup so, for me or am i just pouring this I into a bottle a cup. okay good I don't want to try to pour a bo- or, a, like rum from a rum bottle into like a coke zero bottle <laughs> And I kept saying special we're drinking for, or I'm going to be drinking for the patron segment. So, you know, it was really weird. Uh, For New Year's Eve, I actually discovered this really weird mixture of alcohol, which was really, really good. It was that, it was Coke Zero and that vodka. It was cotton, wasn't it? It was cotton candy. No, it was cake, uh, cake vodka. And I swear, 
it tastes like chocolate cake. <laughs> Weirdest thing. I really expected it to be just god awful nasty. But I don't like chocolate cake. And it it tasted straight like chocolate cake. No vodka bite. It was the weirdest thing ever. So that was a lot of fun. So cheers to you guys. Cheers. Eh. Cheers, guys. So if you didn't check out our last episode uh, where we wrapped up uh, Alma Blonde talking about avian cryptids, all things avians, uh, we did an episode where we talked about the birds aren't real conspiracy. Yep. Uh, the conspiracy theory that uh, that started in 2017 that all birds uh, were exterminated by the government that they are have been replaced by drones for the government to spy on us. No birds are real. And it is a 100% fabricated conspiracy that was made up uh, by Gen Zers to handle uh, the a wave of disinformation. So or at I, least that's what they At least that's what they claim. Him. So definitely go check that episode out because we have a lot of thoughts on that. So uh, Mary Grace said, makes me wonder about the blue jay that killed my tomcat Tigger years ago. That's a surprising matchup. Does that count as a, a drone strike? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the government took out your cat. They're, but, nasty, they're, they're disgusting birds, I mean. And blue jays can be highly aggressive. I would believe one would t- attack a tomcat, but I'd be surprised that one could do serious damage to one. Yeah. Recognized soup said, what about the people that have birds as pets? Do they think that the, that those birds are conspiring with, conspiring with the government too, or that owners just don't know? As a fur, former bird owner myself, I have so many questions. That is, a, I didn't even think about birds as pets because I don't think of birds as pets, but that's a good point. It's like I brought up the hunting thing. It's like I've hunted a duck before. It definitely was not a robot. <laughs> like I think, all, like are all birds that are supposed to be so, pet shops are probably pet stores are probably in on the whole conspiracy, and that they're targeting people specifically so the government can spy on you in your house, or maybe they're just cyborged enough. Just enough to be convincingly real. Or like uh, crazy bird people are like the government handlers. Like or, the or birds are real and this this conspiracy <laughs> theory maybe doesn't make much sense. I, I, I think I think about well that's the point of it is that it's supposed to be fabricated. So it's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be a joke for people to cope with so many different types of conspiracies out there. But that goes in uh, with our last comment that we're going to cover from Chill7509, patron. Chill says, people need to be able to respect and understand intent. Like, uh, so like in Stephen King's It, the book, Bill has an issue with his college class and says something that basically means sometimes a story is just a story and it doesn't always need to be something, uh, some serious thing. It translates well into real life because people will die on a hill that every single thing have some extra deeper meaning, but it just doesn't. Let a joke be a joke, but on the flip side, don't be dumb enough to think that everything is. Oh, that, that goes into a discussion we were having, like, um, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, about a watership down. Mm-hmm. Where um, you were saying that it was supposed to be just a story about rabbits, yeah. and I was saying that... Like, the meaning of a book is less about the intent it was written with, but more about what we take away from it. And you were, I think you took the opposite stance that it should be more about the intent it was written with. Yeah, like, with the like because the author of Watership Down, people so many times have tried to find this deeper meaning, and the guy literally just for years just goes, it's just a story about rabbits. And I mean, It's so hard to believe there's so much symbolism and meaning in that story. Well, the problem is, is if you try to take something away from a story that's not supposed to be there, then, I mean, you could just, you could be running into all sorts of problems. That's you know. true, but the real effect any literature has 
is how it affects the audience and how the audience then take it and affect the world around them with the lessons that they learn from it. Well, yeah, but it's also like the fiddler in the roof. Like whenever Tevi accepts like that communist guy from Russia and he goes, oh yeah, I can teach your daughter. I'll, I'll, there's all sorts of stuff for the Bible the Torah that you could do. And then he tells the story. Uh, I think it was Jacob that he does uh, in which he like, he's supposed to work for seven years and then marry like his boss's daughter. And then he like welches on the deal. And then he goes, so you see what the Bible teaches here? Never trust an employer. (laughs) (laughs) It starts doing that. I mean, that's all advice right there, though. I I, I know. I'm not saying I don't agree with what he does, (laughs) but I'm like, you know, I'm thinking in the end, I don't know if like the writers of the original story were necessarily going for that, that to be the part that you got to be focusing (laughs) about. But, um, but, but honestly, I think for this conversation that me and Vic are having, the birds aren't a real conspiracy. I think is a is a good subject matter to have that conversation about oh, that yeah. chill that chill is that chill is talking about. So I think there's some good things uh, to take away from that. Uh, but yeah, let's get into today's episode. So uh, this whole month long, our patrons voted on monsters and magic, and it's so awesome because we know I mean, you guys know how much well, I mean, me and you love cryptids, right? Oh yeah, and then so many times that there's there's for some stories involving cryptids, there's this weird magical element like these themes like underneath or, or surrounding it and it makes it i think for such a much more interesting story than you came up with this phenomenal idea for doing the golem of prague well when i think about monsters and magic the golem of prague is the first one that really jumps to my head that's the like kind of archetypical story that is a little more in the zeitgeist right now mm-hmm. but one of the things that surprised me when i was looking at the golem of prague is I had known about the Golem of Prague prior to doing this episode. We've talked about it, but we've talked about it before. It's unpopular. Like it was in Gargoyles. It was in Gar- It was in uh, Supernatural. You know, it, it's something that is in the second. But there's not a whole lot of information that's really out there. Like no, not not not, 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 not not as much as as other things, and that shocked me. Like you know, it was re- like you know for fun because it's been a few days that we've been doing this, so I've been listening to some YouTube videos, trying to listen to some other stuff that people said, and I was shocked how fast I ran out of some episodes to listen to people talking about it, and I thought that, and I thought that was rather weird. Do you know what I really liked about it, uh, some of the research I did? Mm-hmm. The fact that it's a real discussion if of was the Golem of Prague real in Prague, like. The society is torn on it. It's something that some people believe was definitely a very true thing, and other people there believe it's a myth. But it's heavily entwined with their local culture. You see, if you know what to look for, you'll see depictions of the Golem of Prague on signs, Mm -hmm. in cobblestones. About everywhere you look, there's these little hints to that part of their history. And I was surprised it's that intertwined. Mm -hmm. Because Prague's not a small town. No, I mean, it's it's, it's big. it's It's a huge town. And so I... So I, I was really glad that we could highlight the golem of the golem of Prague story. I, I want to go ahead. So before we get in, before I, I want to go ahead and do like the the general story as most people typically understand it because it doesn't take that long. No, it doesn't really take that long uh, to tell. So um, if you've never heard the story of the golem of Prague in the late 16th century, the Jews of Prague were being subjugated to horrific uh, programs or ethnic cleansing cleansings at the hands of the Christian citizens in the city. Uh, many expected that the Holy Roman Emperor, King Rudolf II, uh, to order the Jews of the ghetto to be purged completely. The spiritual leader of the community, Judeo Lo Ben Bezalel, known as the Maharal, 
uh, or the teacher decided to take action to protect his people. Taking clay from the banks of the Volta River, he and his assistants crafted a man within the temple. Using ancient Kabbalah rites, they began circling the golem, chanting magic incantations. The ritual contained with uh, the ritual concluded uh, with Rabbi Lo writing a shem or a name of God on either the forehead of the golem or inserting into the mouth of the golem to awaken him, depending upon the version of the story you hear. With the ritual completed, they call the golem Joseph, and Lo calls for him to be clothed. Various versions of the story described kind of what happened next, depending upon what version you hear. Uh, the golem would protect the Jews in the ghetto from persecution. Uh, they would assist the citizens with daily tasks. Uh, but Lo would always deactivate the golem for the Sabbath. Uh, one night, the golem goes on a rampage. He goes on like this murderous rampage through the city. Uh, some say he did it because he was rebuked by a woman that he falls in love with. Uh, some say he goes too far in his mission to protect the Jews of the city. Uh, or maybe even because he be, he started having an existential crisis of self. Again, depending upon the version of the story you hear. Uh, for whatever reason that happens, Lo is forced to deactivate the golem and stores his pieces in the attic of the, I'm always going to mispronounce this, the Alt-Neshush, um, the temple that he, that he was crafted in. Uh, Rabbi Lo then forbade anyone except those uh, his successors of his bloodline from going into the attic to reactivate the golem in case he would be needed again in the future. Many people who are detractors from it say um, he never actually wrote about the golem in his mm -hmm. journals, but his predecessors were very aware of uh, the fact that they were banned from the attic, that they could not go there. And in their journals, they do talk about that, where one of his predecessors tries to basically break the ban. He goes through special baths, does special prayers, and we actually have his journals from the time period talking about his attempt to go up there. And before he could get into the door, an invisible force stopped him from entering, and he had to go back and never tried it again. Eventually, the stairs were removed so people couldn't get up there. The door was locked, the stairs were removed, and it was just no one can go. Now, if you go there today and you see some people that do like video vlogs of tours through the city, you can even see sort of like the rungs of where the steps used to be leading up into the attic uh, of the temple uh, of the temple where it was done. At. And I will write it in the, in the show notes below for what the name of it is. It's just very difficult to pronounce. And, but there have uh, been expeditions it, up there in more recent yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, they had, uh, the, the temple was renovated. <coughs> uh, the temple was renovated in 1883. And then again, people actually like went in there in 2014. And both times people claimed that it wasn't there. Yeah, but so, I, with all that press and stuff, I wouldn't leave it there either. Well, people often report two th one of two things. I've heard the stories that it was transported to a nearby cemetery and it's buried somewhere. So that way that people wouldn't find it. Uh, there's also the story that involved the Nazis during World War yep. II that some say that they attempted to go up there and then they just they perished before they got there. But other people also claiming that they may, it may have been removed and taken, and taken somewhere else. Um, there's also the, either them or the the people of the temple. There are there is also the possibility that it was reactivated at some point in time, because mm -hmm. effectively, you could probably just put it back together and reissue its will with the or not its will, but its activation with a new well, scroll. Okay, so this was one of the things that I found really really weird about the the story involving the golem. Actually, any 
any story involving any golem that's made because it's not like the golem of Prague is the only story. Oh no, there's is, many is, of them. Is not there's golems. There's golem creation stories that go at least from the from the Jewish perspective that go all the way back. I mean, to the twelfth to the twelfth century and even arguably even before that, and all the way up to like the nineteenth. Yeah, yeah. So was they never really describe what the creature looks like in very vivid detail. Well, it, you're, you're right. It's not heavily described, but we do have certain descriptors. And the important part is they describe it as looking like a man. Right. They describe it as looking like something like that could pass as human. Yeah, enough, enough that, you know, Rabbi Lowe wanted it to be clothed. So at some point, like his his visage had to be convincing enough to where you know there'd be some, like if you think of like um like uh the like of like Greek sculptures where like people are in the nude. It's not like people go, oh man, we got to cover that up. You know, we got to cover. Yeah. I mean, I know some people do that, but like it's not moved enough that where people do that. But like you know, apparently like the ritual was it was he was so convincing enough that they felt the need to clothe him because you know did not show off his dangly bits <laughs> of, uh, of what of what was going on, you know. I like the theory that it's convincing enough that it could have been reactivated and could be out there still today just passing as a human. Yeah. It, I, I I think that could be a, I think that could be a possibility because it's it's never really described in, in, in most other golem stories what happens to the golems. Like it just said that they were created, and they're like it never really says like fully like what they did. There like, is like after that. There is the one. It, this comes after the Golem of Prague. This is a later story. One of the things with golems is, and this is the one thing that I think would make it hard for them to pass, is that they get bigger over time. That they start at a certain height, but over time they will just become larger and larger and larger. And uh, one rabbi's golem, I think this was actually a descendant of Rabbi Lone, if I remember right. Um, his golem was too large, and he wanted to destroy the golem. But he could no longer reach up to get to the um, words on the forehead. Because uh, in some golem traditions, they say you put the word for truth on their forehead. And once you er erase the first letter, the word goes from truth to death. And that's how you kill the golem permanently. So he couldn't reach up to remove the thing anymore. So he, asked, he sat down and asked the golem to uh, remove his boots for him. And his idea was when the golem bent down, he would erase the first letter. But when the golem went down, he erased the first letter and then died under the uh, collapsing clay that then just buried him. And the records of the time does show he died at a young age. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not even just the word for truth. It's not, it's not as simple as just... No, it's much more the complicated. Word, the word truth. Because for the Kabbalah tradition of what of what they believe whenever they're crafting something, they they in the Kabbalah they believe that like the Hebrew language, like with the alphabet, you can take letters from that and use that as a way of like essentially doing magic, like doing mm -hmm. like doing some sort of rituals to have like a real world effect. Like they believe that if you arrange the letters in a way um, to get one of the words of God, that you could like like legit create uh, create life. So it's not like just writing truth in necessarily in the Bible. They they probably it's probably. I, I don't even think necessarily it's probably even that particular word. I think it's probably it's probably like a different actual like, con like collection of letters. Well, in old Hebrew, no one word only has one, one meaning. meaning right? It has a ton of meanings. Like, um, 
there's people who've gone back and look at some of the base scrolls from Hebrew and said, okay, let's translate it in a way that makes sense, but would have a different message mm. and have come up with all sorts of different ways to translate it just because the words have so many or so many meanings and you need the proper context. Right. And another interesting thing too, about the, the creation of the golem too, is it's not, it's not even just about writing that particular letters, but that was one of the things that I found really fascinating about the story to be able to pull this off. Not only do you need to have the correct word, but you yourself need to be a, a righteous person, like close to equal to God, to be able, as close as you can get, to be able to activate something. That's why there's not an army. Cause I saw this all throughout the, I saw, I saw like a, like this all throughout the internet, the Reddit with people having conversations about this. Like, why don't they just make armies of golems and do this? I'm like, it's not that easy because you have to be an incredibly holy person, a righteous person to be able to accomplish this. Yeah, there's this traditional belief that the more righteous you are, the closer you are to God, to where if you're a righteous person equal to God, you can do any act of creation that God can. Mm. And that's why in some of these stories where, like golems, the general lore is they cannot talk. But in the earliest golem story, I'm trying to remember the person who made it, and I'm, I'm missing it right now, but he was so righteous, his golem could talk. Mm-hmm. But then when he realized what he made was just a facsimile of life, more of a mockery of life, he just turned it back to dust. But it does look like if someone is righteous enough, you could instill a greater degree of life than, say, the golem of Prague had, because that one was incapable of talking. Yeah, like it's your success is only going to be married by yourself. And man, I think that that probably takes a huge toll on a person for what you're trying to do because not only are you testing your knowledge of like the Kabbalah for that, you're testing your soul. Like you're testing your soul essentially to see like how righteous of a person you are. And I imagine that if, say, if you attempted to do that ritual and it didn't work, and if you have other people around, like, what does that say about you? Like, what what would that reflect about? Like, what would that reflect about you? And I think that's one of the, um, I think that's one of the inner meanings of, like, the Gollum story that I think people should think about when they're thinking about the stories. Yeah, it's, it's almost a test of faith in a way. Like, say, there, there are the mechanical aspects where you have to have virgin clay and you have to walk around it in certain ways and you have to recite certain words. But I think you're going to make sure you get those right because if you are a righteous person and then you just screw up one of the steps and your golem fails, mm-hmm. everyone's going to think you have some sort of deep down stuff. But I was wanting to talk some about um, like why the golem of Prague went nuts, why it turned. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, for one, I mean, it could it could be reflect. I mean, one could argue that it's a reflection of, of well, I mean, like if he, I mean, if he, if he, like if he himself wasn't up to the level of what it says you're supposed to be then maybe that could be one of the reasons about why eventually this thing eventually goes on a murderous rampage. It could be that. I think my theory is it does lie in his flaws, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. My thoughts are this. Okay, he forgets to remove it on the Sabbath, right? Mm -hmm. And a golem is a divinely created creature. That means it was still functioning, because when the scroll's in, the golem is functioning. The The golem is, in a case, working. And what are you not supposed to do on the Sabbath? Work. Well, that means the golem was working, functioning, and likely doing its normal duties. And in many of the legends says, part of his duty is just doing general work for the community. What if this creature, being a divinely created creature, was then compelled through magic because he forgot to remove the scroll to work on the Sabbath? And this caused a issue for it. It was being forced to sin as a divine creature. 
I would think perhaps that would be what would, it would cause it to go berserk because Hebrew angels are not considered to have will. They just do what they are told. They're considered to be more like almost on an animalistic level of intelligence where they don't have their own free will. If this thing did not have a choice but to sin because it was compelled, perhaps that tormented it into lashing out against the community, or perhaps it just caused it to fully glitch out. Well, I mean, but also, too, uh, humans themselves are not perfect beings. I mean, we, we, I mean, if we go, like, within the Jew- Jewish tradition, it goes back to original sin, even humanity itself, yeah. sin created by a, created by a perfect being. Um, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've always found very interesting, if you compare the Golem of Prague to like what a lot of other people compare it to, if you like like artificial intelligence, like what happens yeah. when we ourselves try to create intelligence, it's a pretty solid uh, comparison. Yeah, some of the some of the things that first start happening when we that we've noticed whenever we create artificial intelligence and we give the things the ability to do things is is it shakes our norms. <laughs> like, like it'll give up the English language, it'll give up like human morals, it'll give up like just tons of all these things and then just start doing things on its own for yeah. what it deems. So we call it a murderous rampage. That might not be what it's calling, what it's doing. I still think it's very fascinating. The 3D printer they gave AI to and then said, make whatever you want. The first thing it made was a smaller version of itself. It's right. first thing it made or it did was reproduce, right? which I think is very telling of like the nature of AI and things like that. So like, you know, maybe it goes on, you know, we say it goes on a murderous rampage. Maybe it came to the conclusion that it had to do something to protect, you know, like the Jewish people. Maybe the thing it had to do was just start removing every single threat because that's the only way that it could keep the Jewish people safe. Or maybe it thought it was doing God's work. Exactly. Like seeing them for their sins of compelling him to work on the Sabbath. You know, if we start seeing like what artificial intelligence starts doing where it just, starts getting rid of human norms and and morals what we think like it's not going to share ours like you could see it like you know it'll you could see a similar thing with the golem of Prague. i think if we want to examine the thinking of the golem i think a good way to start is this the standard syntax versus syntax that is something that gets discussed in ai a lot Mm-hmm. Um, we think in syntax, we add in emotion, we add in situation, we add in a lot of things when making our decisions because that's how we think. We think in context of a situation. Syntax instead is a line of it's, if then then this, if this, if then then this, if A and B then C. Um, it's a specific sort of formula. And I think like that is very much like the Goma product. If scroll is in, do as scroll says. And I think something went wrong in that syntax. Yeah, it's not it's not doing anything wrong. It's being told what's be, yeah. what it's being told to do. It's like all the time when we're like computers, like it's doing something wrong. It's go, it's glitches, but really, in, in, in all honesty, the computer is doing what it thinks it's being told to do. Yeah. To do. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It, it, the error is definitely not in its execution. Its error in is uh, is in its understanding of what we want it to do. And I. I have to imagine that this has to be it. Like, I don't really buy the that it fell in love and things like that because a golem is effectively a homunculus. A golem has no soul. It has no free will. It is a facsimile of life, but it itself is not truly life in the way that man is life. In the Hebrew tradition, God, or man is made of clay, but... God put a soul into that clay, and that's what made it different. Actually, it goes way beyond, like, say, the Christian, Hebrew, Judeo uh, tradition. 
because almost every creation story has man being created from clay. You find it in China, you find it in South America, you find it in North America, you find it in many parts of Europe, Italy, Greece. Like It's such a common motif. It's almost a disturbing thing because most creation stories has man coming from clay or dirt or dust or something along those lines. It seems to be, if those stories are to be believed, how man comes to exist. I think that... Do you want to get into the idea of like what, like maybe what if the Golem of Prague like might not may or may not be real? Yeah, like for like a reflection of what it might be, because if you think about like because I, it's true that Lowe did there is no he himself has no thing written down about about riding the, the Golem of Prague, and I think if but we what, do know he did ban people from the entrance correct, of the attic. Correct. Um, you know, so which it's interesting because one of the things that he does he's a spiritual teacher. Yeah. So I, I, I find it kind of odd that he himself would not write about his own spiritual journey with that because that would be a reflection of how righteous of a person that he is. But if you think about the context of the time in which this is going on, we're in the 16th century, okay, where when the blood libel for the Jews is very is yeah. very is very prominent. We don't know what the blood libel is. Essentially, it's this conspiracy believe that that was believed by a lot of people even at the time that like Jews would kidnap children and use children like Christian blood in their matzah like in their bread it's a horrible or, horrible thing or, or for, for their Kabbalic practices or for their Kabbalic practices but what actually but what, one of the things the golem of Prague in according to some stories did was during parts of the day the golem would disguise himself as a Christian and go among their communities to see if anyone was planning on planting a child's body in the Jewish district yeah. to excite, incite one. And that means it had to look pretty human. Yeah. But what the Golem of Prague, what the Pro Golem of Prague does to be able to make a Golem, you have to be a righteous person. Yep. You have to be a person of, of virtue. So to say that if we created something like that, this sort of a divine being is a reflection of our higher morals of what we are. Like we are a righteous people. We have created something like this. How can we be this sort of an evil person if we have created something like this? So what if what the Golem of Prague was, was that as a way to combat this whole idea of the blood libel of there is something either a, that we have created something righteous or B just, Hey, we're powerful. Leave us alone. I mean, right. can, I mean either or, but like of something like that, because, likely that'd be yeah, a statement. Yeah. Because you can't, you couldn't be an evil because you couldn't be an evil. Like if you look at like the depictions of like, um, of, of the golem of proc, like post world war one, um, like I think it was Wagner, like it's a, it's the 1920, 1921 like silent movie of the golem of Prague, mm -hmm. like the whole creation of the golem. it looks like something straight from like the black halter like he's yeah. like he's like evil he looks like wizard <laughs> and he's like casting this evil spell and the golem of Prague at the end of the story is like defeated by christian child innocence <laughs> like I mean, so what if what the golem of Prague was was something as a way of saying to people, you know, we are a righteous people, and to be able, to, that's how we did this. I mean, perhaps, and also that same movie changed a lot of the depiction of the golem, where early on the depictions were viewed as being very human-like. And the question is, how do you go from that description to what you would find in a D and D monster manual? Mm -hmm. It's that movie. They depicted the golem as this hulking, inhuman-looking thing, and that changed the depiction over time to that. Mm -hmm. 
Where before that, that just really wasn't how it was represented. You know, I, I saw this interesting question that was on Reddit. And and people found for some reason people found it offensive, but I don't I don't I don't I don't think that it was. I think that we can that we can talk about it. Because I had the same question myself. The Golem of Prague was created as a way to, to defend the Jewish people. Yeah. So if you think of folklore and like and what this is supposed to do, like how why is there no Gollum story around the nineteen four like around the nineteen forties that surfaced around the Holocaust? Well, supposedly by that point in time, the story or the teachings of how to do it were lost. Supposedly, I think it was like early nineteenth century or mid nineteenth century. No, it was early. Um, it's supposed to have disappeared around that time. Or the belief of Orthodox Jews, like the belief in Gollum, sort of declined. Because, you know, yeah. it, it was really interesting that, it, that I saw a depiction. Of, like, we saw sort of this uh, story of it in the movie Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> like, really? I didn't gr- see it. Oh, dude, it's a great movie. So, in it, it's, uh, it's got Brad Pitt. And in it, it's a it's a satire movie. It's not real. So, like, Brad Pitt plays this American guy that, like, hires a bunch of Jewish American soldiers. They parachute, they parachute into Nazi Germany. And then they hunt Nazis. And one of the things that... And one of the things that... <laughs> that they do when they catch Nazis that don't cooperate is one of them beats them to death with a baseball bat. Okay. <laughs> they call up the bear Jew. Uh, and uh, yeah. And then uh, Brad Pitt's like, he actually likes it when Nazis don't cooperate. Cause he's like, this is the closest we get to go into the movies is watching Donnie <laughs> is Donnie do that. But in that movie, uh, the story about the bear Jew, like that does with the baseball bat was that he's a golem. Oh. Is that they have a golem with them to create fear in the Nazis that they have one, and they're coming at and they're coming they're coming after the Nazis in the movie. Yeah, like back in uh, when we did those series that series on um, like the supernatural and the Nazis, man, like it makes a lot of sense that this would be an excellent tool of fear during that time period because when you look at the belief set of Germany in that time period. Superstition was a big part of that Fukish tradition that they were following at that at that point in time. There was a belief of this unseen element of the world, of the mystical nature of the world, and that certain people can wield it as a weapon. Right. That's why Hitler was looking for Mjolnir. He thought that it would right. be either a magical or technological device that he could use to win the war. So one of the th- one of the th- one of the prevailing theories about the Golem of Prague, what it is, is it's a way of. Uh, is they say the earliest writings that people claim that they can find of the Golem of Prague is in the early 19th century by Jewish writers. And it's a belief that the Golem of Prague was crafted as a way to combat, or sorry, not as a combat, but or uh, at the same time as German folklore that's on the rise in the, or in the early 19th century as well. So I, it, it's, I can see that yeah, as a possibility. Yeah, as a way of like enriching the culture as well. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that's what I believe. I'm just saying that's what people, a lot of people today, will say about the Golem of Prague story. One of the interesting things about, particularly some of the stories where we can source it to the earlier time periods, most of them do not end well. There aren't a lot of Golem stories where it ends being a great idea, where the Golem master ends up looking well at the end. Like um, the story of the greatly divine man making, and he just turns it to dust. The story of the uh, guy who has it collapse on him. The Golem of Prague is another excellent story. And I didn't find any Golem stories that really where 
the inning was like highly positive as a whole. It always seemed to have gone wrong. Well, you know, again, it's the the golem is flawed because man is flawed. Yes. God, God created man, and, you know, God, God creates man and was able to do it because he's a perfect being. Man cannot create a similar thing because we are an imperfect being. But the source, uh, the true, like, core of the stories are really about <sighs> hubris, the hubris right, of man. Right, that, right, That's what it always seems to come back to. Well, you see this in a, I mean, you see this even across, the, like, across other stories similar to the golem, like Frankenstein or, mm-hmm. or Ptolemy. Or even in real life, when it comes to AI artificial intelligence, I mean, you you, you see this still of what ha- uh, of of just what happens. Are you familiar with the theory that life actually came from clay? Which one? Okay, I mean that's a lot of people. I mean, uh, you no, go no, back no, no, to that. No. I mean, the scientific a- theory. Oh, of it. okay. No, sure. Share with this. Share with listeners. This is a extremely divisive theory, um, mainly because. It's hard to test. A lot of people say there might be something to it. A lot of people say there's nothing to it. But the thing is, we don't have the technology to test this right now. It's this theory that one of the only things that's self-replicating that you can find out in the world that's non-organic is clay. Clay creates this series of crystals that kind of in its own way flake off and reproduce. That's why clay can kind of spread over time. And it has this very organic sort of growth. Like when we produce through DNA, we pass on heritage traits, correct? So do they. If the crystal, because clay is effectively a, a colony of crystals. If the mother crystal, and they actually use the term mother crystal when it comes to this, creates a daughter crystal, it will have similar flaws. But much like genetics, these flaws can also correct over time. And it's one of the only pieces of inorganic material that can actually do something like this. But the thing is, we would need much more advanced technology and a lot of time to actually study if this is akin to biological uh, reproduction. Because some people say, if we're talking about where did organic matter come from, perhaps it's this. If life spontaneously generated on Earth, this might be the best possible candidate for how. So like the venom symbiote. <laughs> the venom symbiote like have a, like a little bit of little drop off and it'll create its own like symbiote that grows and has some of its inherent parent traits, but eventually will become its own thing. Well, it's the only thing that we can point at in the inorganic world that I'm aware of that functions mm-hmm. like this. So some t- scientists have said, well, we have an example of something that works like DNA. It works like mm-hmm. a genetic system. If we're saying life spontaneously generated here out of nothing, this might be the best nothing it could have generated from. Well, nothing says what the golem's skin looks like after it was done. doesn't necessarily say if it's it's, it's itself a walking clay or stone thing or if it shapes into flesh we're not sure like people's descriptions really come from like some of the early 20th century silent movies for when it comes to the golem but wait think about this though we have stories from all over the world all over the world almost like a surprisingly high about amount of mythology say we came from clay and now we're having scientists saying you know if we're going to pick a possible candidate, this seems a lot like biological function. How did the ancient world call that? Is this why it's so universal? Did we somehow possess this knowledge that this might be where we actually came from? Or it goes back to like, art imitates life. I mean, pe- but people have been making clay people as a art form for thousands of years. I mean, even some of our earliest work is people crafting other people things out of clay so i think that idea goes back 
So you think it's just a powerful way metaphor further. for creation? I think, yeah, but I th- and I think it goes way. I mean, it probably goes back to mean some like some of the very first critically thinking people that 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 think that they try to connect those two things. But while pigment painting is also an extremely ancient old, uh, form of expression and creation, but I don't know of any stories that that's where we came from. Like we came, like we came, like we came from paintings of other things. Yeah, but no, but uh, but people have but people have the idea of something physically creating like something physically creating something out of clay so i think that idea i mean every every culture has the idea of us being crafted by something so i mean, I mean because again we're is like crafting us know, from the clay yeah so like we're you know like us so the idea of like oh we can make a person of clay maybe that's where we came from too because it makes sense i mean i i, I think that i i think that i that idea is even just a very ancient idea but if if it's just because it's a archetype of creation we just see a greater degree of variance from that area, especially across multiple cultures. Well, I mean, we, we, I mean, we, we see a variation in the way I would say that it animates. I would say that's one of the things that does that. I mean, sure, perhaps, but I really feel like there should be a greater degree of variance in the creation myths. Cause this is, this goes beyond a motif. It is almost a standard. <laughs> like it is that common. Like it's it's harder to find ones where we don't come from clay. No, no, no I, I I get that I get that. No, but I mean, but I but I think it's this. Mo- I, I I think it is a just a motif that is ingrained in human culture. Like I I think that is something that just goes back that far. I'm not saying that we. I'm not saying that necessarily that that it doesn't. I just I think it's been a this idea of man making life out of something. I think is just it's been ingrained in our stories for just for a very long time, and there's probably something to it. I mean, what are your final thoughts on the subject? Oh man, um, I think that I think man is always okay. I think man is 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 driven to reproduce. I think in some way, shape, or form, we're always driven to to put ourselves into something else that will that will sort of live on. And I, I, I think that's one of the things that the that golem story go, golem stories like that that do. I think the golem of Prague is an example of a a group of people that have been persecuted for as long as people can can remember that have been that have that have been persecuted. And golems are a reflection of that as a way of saying like they are that they are a they are a righteous people. They are I think that's part of their folklore as a way to show that and demonstrate that. I think I think that it, I think that is something that is part of the of a part of the Jewish folklore, and that's the reason about why that it is there the way that it is. It's kind of more my final thought on the golem, the golem of Prague. Now, do I think that there are actual physical golems walking around places? I would say I would believe people have tried. You know, I think that if you look at most modern AI intelligence and what we're driven to do, it would make I would one hundred percent believe that people have legitimately attempted to probably craft life in clay. Now, whether or not there's now whether or not they were successful, I leave that to other people to decide. I believe the Golem of Prague was something. I mean, if you look at the time period, there is a lot of evidence that Kabbalah was active and alive in this area, and people, at least at the time, did believe it had true, real power. We don't have a lot of evidence 
that the Golem of Prague existed from the journals. But we do have evidence that there is a supernatural force there. Um, like even journals of from one generation later is talking about that there is something supernatural in the attic. Some people, when they give the description of Golem, they'll say it's both there and not there, but that's never fully explored in the literature. Perhaps maybe what was created was not necessarily a physical man walking around the street made of clay, but I do believe they had conjured something because there's so many examples from the time period, from journals of that area, of supernatural things happening when someone tries to enter that area. Perhaps the golem was physical, moved around, and after it was broken, perhaps it did have some sort of force still left over, or perhaps the stories aren't as exact as we may expect. But I think something went down supernatural in Prague. What are your guys' thoughts on the Golem of Prague? Do you think that it was a real thing? Do you think that one actually was attempted to to be made that that night in Prague? Do you think that it's just a folklore story? What do you guys think? Put your guys' thoughts in the comments below. Um, if you guys are listening to this, leave us a like button. Leave us a review if you're listening somewhere where you can leave a review. It's a great way to support the podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, smash that like button. Hit that subscribe button. Don't forget to hit that notification bell so you can be updated whenever we put out new content. Um, but yeah, but thank you guys for listening. But until next time, guys, keep believing. Because we'll keep listening. All right, guys, we're going to slide into the Pillow Talk segment of this podcast. If you want to check out the rest of this awesome podcast, all you got to do is go over to our Patreon and sign up. For as little as a dollar a month, you get the rest of this awesome podcast, as well as our bonus videos that we put up exclusively for, for our patrons. If you sign up to be $2 or more a month, you actually get access to our poll where you get to vote on the theme of each month. We're currently right now, Time and Space Anomalies is currently winning. There is so much we can get into that. Yes, for the month of Jan- uh, February, but there is still time. Uh, to get on and let your voices be heard we also got past life phenomenon we got the apocalypse as well as the conspiracy iceberg so get on there and uh, vote and let your voices be heard uh but we're gonna keep going in the in the pillow talk segment about the the golem of Prague. uh i know i know vic's got a really interesting question that'll be fun uh i'll start us off though with a thought that oh, wait, i had there's something i want to talk about first oh what there's something that you and ellie are a big fan of that i've never watched and we, I have begun watching it just like last night. Sailor Moon? Sailor Moon. <laughs> you are, he. for those of you listening out there, he is a huge Sailor Moon fan. I was a Sailor a Moon. massive one. Well, back in the day, it was one of the few animes that you could watch if you didn't have cable. So it was one of the ones that I would watch, uh, uh, that I would watch because it was one of the few cartoons that I could watch. And it's a good cartoon. And Ellie is also a really big fan of it. And last night, she's like, we are watching the original Sailor Moon series from start to finish. And I'm like, okay, sure. And it is a goofy but fun series. Mm-hmm. It just made me think about it because we we're talking about time and space anomalies. And there's one in the last <laughs> episode that we saw. That's awesome. We haven't even gone far enough that like the team's together. <laughs> They're still trying to find uh, uh, all the different Sailor Scouts. Yeah, I think awesome. I think we're at the point where there's like two. They just two. added a second one. So when I was at so when I was at EvilCon, I got into this like roast with some like I did like roast jokes with somebody, and I told somebody I said, "Yo, mama's so fat, she's got her own Sailor Scout." <laughs> That's I the look on their face. I was like, "Boom, old school right there." So okay, okay, let's get. I in. was like, "Sit down, son." Um, so, uh. One of the things that I wanted to kind of go 
go back to as a way of maybe explaining like maybe where the Golma Prague story comes from is remember in the original story that I was talking about that I said that the you know people were concerned that Rud- the King Rudolf II the, the the Holy Roman Empire was gonna was gonna essentially remove the Jews from the ghetto but one of the things that that people need to understand is that Rabbi Lowe